This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Alan Gingell. Alan is an adjunct professor at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. Alan was previously Director General at the Office for National Assessments and prior to that he was a diplomat as well as foreign policy advisor to Paul Keating. Alan joined us to discuss his new book, Fear of Abandonment, Australia in the World Since 1942. This book covers the history of Australia's foreign policy and it's a fascinating read. We have now on the phone a very special guest, Alan Gingell, who was the director of ONA, the Office for National Assessments, the Australian Government's Central Intelligence Assessment Agency, and he was there between 2009 and 2013. And uh, he was also founding executive director of the Lowy Institute for International Policy. Prior to that, he did many things, but among them was foreign policy advisor to Paul Keating. Alan, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your excellent book. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Amy. It's lovely to be here. It's my pleasure because this book, it's called Fear of Abandonment, Australia in the World Since 1942. And it's out through La Trobe University Press, which is an imprint by Black Ink. And I know you've done some really interesting chats about this book already, so I'm hoping to draw from the book and then use some illustrations that have just been utilised by yourself and Paul Keating in your in your latest events as well. First, looking at the frame that you've set for this book and the introduction which really sets it out, you talk about Australia's fear of abandonment and the fact that it really has started way back at our inception in terms of as a British nation and then an independent nation. It's tied back to our colonial past and then it has continued. Could you expound on this concept of the fear of abandonment and why you picked this particular narrative? Yeah, well, the, the um, from the beginning of European settlement in Australia... Amy, it's been clear that we have been a small population making an audacious claim to a very large continent, located a long way from the markets for most of our products and the places from which all except Indigenous Australians um, originally came. It's always a bit dodgy to do sort of national psychology, but I begin the book with the uh, with the uh, European um, Europeans in in Port Jackson waiting anxiously for the arrival of the second fleet. So for, so for me, the decisive uh, thing about the way Australians looked at the world was this fear of abandonment, and I compared it really with the fear of foreign entanglements, which was the primal fear of the American founding fathers. So we've had a very different response to the world. We've seen a range of great and powerful friends, but in particular, we started with Great Britain and you detail that relationship and I guess the gradual move away from the mother country, so to speak, and then moving into another relationship post-World War II, but I'm sure it developed earlier than that, which is the American-Australia Alliance, which was formalised through the ANZUS Treaty. In terms of the current great and powerful friends we have and how that relationship developed, how did the ANZUS Alliance come about, the treaty come about, and how has it developed since? It came about because at the end of the Second World War, Australians, Australian governments and the Australian people felt great anxiety about 
what would happen if Japan was allowed to rebuild its economy and to rearm. So the sort of the ironic thing really is that the ANZUS Treaty had its roots in anxiety about Japan, which is now, as successive Australian governments say, our best friend in Asia. But Percy Spender, who is one of the most consequential of Australian foreign ministers, I think, saw an opportunity as uh, the Americans consumed now by the Cold War and their rivalry with the Soviet Union, decided that they wanted to establish a peace treaty with Japan, which, w- which would um, enable quick rebuilding. So the price that the Australians imposed on the Americans for this, uh, for this peace treaty was the, uh, the ANZUS alliance. Well, it's really interesting because as you show in detailing the book, the White Australia policy was still in effect at that point. So the anxiety and fears around those above us in Asia was still something that was very much experienced by a lot of Australians and was government policy. That only really left us through Gough Whitlam actually, you know, dismantling that completely. What do you think in terms of how the White Australia policy and those other racial anxieties played into our fear of abandonment? Well, they've been very deep in our um, in our history, of course, and uh, it did take a distressingly long time for Australia to abandon it. I mean, I joined uh, the then Department of External Affairs in 1969, and on my first posting in Burma, I did the immigration work, and I was still required in 1971 to make judgments about potential immigrants to Australia on the basis of their skin colour and their uh, and their background. I found that totally objectionable. But it really was only 1972 uh, with the election of the Whitlam government that that all finally was, uh, was put to bed and the result has been a very successful remaking of Australia in those years. But it still seems remarkably recent to me. Indeed. If we come back to the, the ANZUS Alliance and the Australia-US relationship which still seems very central to our foreign policy making. In terms of Australia's independence and its formulation of its own foreign policy in recent history, how much of that truly is independent and has been independent in the mid to late 20th century and now into the 21st century? And how much of it has been strongly influenced by the US relationship? I think for the most part, Australians are... It's wrong to think that Australia has been manipulated by the United States in all of this. You can agree or disagree with decisions like the decision to go to war in uh, in Iraq, which I personally disagreed with, uh, but uh, we did it. We did it out of or the government, the Australian government, did it out of a sense that it wanted to pin the Americans down, so that if we needed their support, we would get it. So I, I, um, I think that we, um, we brought it on ourselves rather than being forced into it by the United States in, uh, in many of these, what I've referred to in the book as um, wars of American engagement, that is wars in which our commitment 
has been directed mainly at trying to pay a premium on an insurance policy, the most powerful metaphor in Australian public life, rather than because of our own particular interests in the fight that was involved in Iraq and Vietnam before that were examples of that. Mm, you raise an excellent point there that it's something that we've really created and projected ourselves. I mean, the Americans might be slightly bemused sometimes at how obsessed we are by America and our place with them. And we saw that when it came up with uh, the phone call between Malcolm Turnbull and Donald Trump. <laughs> but uh, Paul Keating mentioned, I think it was on, um, I think it was on Friday when you were both speaking together at the recital centre and he said that Australia has to keep pulling out the marriage certificate every day and uh, thought it was an excellent illustration that it's our obsession of needing to, to prove and remind ourselves that we're okay, that America will still be there. Yeah, no, no. Well, I mean, it was uh, you know typical Keating uh, Keating phrase, but yeah. I think it, uh, it summed it up pretty well. It does. And on a related note, which comes up in the more recent history in this book, but also in that discussion is around the pivot to Asia and America's presence in in Asia, as well as, you know, then Australia's place in Asia. Paul Keating suggested that uh, that the pivot to Asia has not been successful. It was announced by Barack Obama in in Australian Parliament. And I guess he suggested that uh, America shouldn't see this as one of the key areas or regions in which they should dominate but that they should just kind of keep the peace and be a somewhat benign but positive force. What's your view on, on Australia's place and America's place in Asia? Well, I think we have, we have different places um, and uh, Australia is part of the broader region. We're more deeply tied to it through sort of economically and through our, you know, increasingly through the uh, sort of nature of the Australian uh, population than the Americans. Almost all the countries of, uh, of Asia want the Americans to be involved in, uh, in some way and it's important, for example, that the Japanese continue to have confidence in the American alliance because, you know, if they didn't, the potential would always be for uh, for, J- for Japan to um, develop its own nuclear um, capability, which would make the region m- much less secure than it is um, at the moment. So the issue for the Americans uh, now and for the rest of us as well is how we adjust to a region in which China is going to have a much greater role, more power as it becomes by many estimates by 2030 the largest economy by any measure in the uh, um, in the world so I don't think any of the countries of the region want the Americans including possibly the Chinese want the Americans simply to go home but the nature of the American engagement will certainly have to change. Yes, well, is that something that you see evolving at the moment and perhaps that's something to watch the changes in evolution at the moment? Well, one thing you can say about President Trump is that he's evolving, can't you? Yes. <laughs> it evolves in new directions. Every day. Uh, every, every, every day. So, so it certainly, certainly is evolving and it's a bit hard to read at the uh, moment as it is with most, most things coming out of Washington, um, what's going to happen. But it certainly seems that he's established a working relationship with... Uh, with President Xi Jinping, and you can see ways in which um, uh, in which there might be a move to a new um, modus uh, vivendi between the two. Yeah, that's a huge development and a very different way to do things than what has been done in the past. 
Certainly we've seen even changes in the rhetoric around North Korea, which I saw overnight that Trump said he would be honoured to meet the leader of North Korea. <laughs> yeah, it'd be worth buying tickets to that one. Definitely. Be a fly on the wall. But uh, in terms of just summarising and summing up our discussion, because I know you have a place to be, I know that it also comes up and it came up in one of the discussions around this book is that Australia has had some foreign policy achievements in terms of things that you could hang your hat on and say, yes, that was a moment where Australia saw change and actively shaped a new way of doing things or engaging, as you say, in statecraft. What do you see as the greatest successes in terms of Australia's foreign policy and operating within this context of the fear of abandonment? Well, I think the biggest successes, you, you sort of categorise them broadly, I, I think. One is that we have really developed over time and with a lot of sort of fits and starts and problems along the way, a set of strong relationships with the countries closest to us in both uh, Southeast Asia and the, uh, and the South Pacific. That's, you know, we, we're at peace with our neighbours and we have pretty good relations with them and that's not a bad thing. We have a deep economic relationship with the countries of Northeast Asia, first Japan, then Korea, now China, which has been absolutely fundamental to our capacity to do the things in this country that we want to do. And those relationships, both Japan's beginning right back in 1957 with the Japan Commerce Agreement under under the Menzies uh, um, government right through to the FTA with China have been important achievements that uh, that we've helped to shape. We've also made a contribution, I think, to the broader global rules-based order on issues like the law of the sea, for example, the rules governing the World uh, Trade Organization, and so on. We've been we've been active participants in the international system and that's been one of the consequences of our fear of abandonment. We haven't wanted to be left alone in our corner of the world and so we've tended to uh, to go out and engage with the outside world. There's been no real tradition of isolationism in Australia and I think that's a good thing. Yes, most definitely. We really thank you, Alan, for your time. I know that we've only just scratched the surface of your book because it's truly extensive and insightful at every page and there's just so much nuance and complexity to Australian foreign policy that I hope our uh, listeners can actually grab a copy and have a read and appreciate it for what it is, which is an absolute masterpiece. So thank you, Alan, for joining us. Thanks so much, Amy. It's been great to be with you. A pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.